This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Racial segregation in every metropolitan area of this country was designed, enforced, created, perpetuated by a racially explicit government policy at all levels of government that was designed to ensure that African Americans and whites couldn't live near one another. Welcome to Amicus. I'm your guest host, Mark Joseph Stern. Dahlia Lithwick is out. She'll be back for the next episode. And later in this episode, she'll talk to Richard Rothstein about the history of housing segregation. But first, I'm going to talk about two really important things that happened at the Supreme Court this week. First, on Monday, the court agreed to hear three major cases asking whether current civil rights law prohibits discrimination against LGBTQ people in the workplace. And then on Tuesday, the justices heard oral arguments in a huge case challenging the Trump administration's ability to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Before we get to the census drama, though, let's talk LGBTQ. As we speak, Democrats in Congress are pushing a bill called the Equality Act that would protect LGBTQ people in employment, housing, education, you name it. So why exactly does the Supreme Court have to decide if existing law already protects LGBTQ people in the workplace? Here's the deal. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination, quote, on the basis of sex. Courts and government agencies haven't interpreted that law consistently. Lower courts disagree about whether sex discrimination includes LGBTQ discrimination, and now the Supreme Court needs to step in and set them straight, so to speak. To walk us through this dispute, I'm going to chat with Jillian Thomas, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU Women's Rights Project and author of the fantastic book Because of Sex, A History of Title VII. Jillian, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Jillian, I want you to take us back to 1964 when Congress was debating the Civil Rights Act. The focus of the bill was, of course, on race. It was largely an effort to fight Jim Crow. So how did this racial justice bill wind up including a historic provision that also outlawed employment discrimination because of sex? So the 64 Civil Rights Act had a number of provisions or what we call titles. And you're right, it addressed all of the various aspects of society where Jim Crow was still in effect, everything from public accommodations to housing. And Title VII was the provision dealing with employment. And you're correct, for most of the debate on the bill, the protected categories addressed by Title VII included race and color, also national origin and religion. And then on February 8th, 1964, the last day of floor debate in the House, a virulent segregationist from Virginia, Howard Smith, got up and said he wanted to offer an amendment, and it was to add sex to the list of protected characteristics. And the place went wild, not with enthusiasm, but with uh, hilarity. And for a good couple of hours, folks stood up to talk about what a ridiculous idea this was to be injecting sex into what was a civil rights bill. 
So why exactly did Smith stand up to introduce this amendment? Historians have debated this for many years, and the answer is is still somewhat muddy. And Smith himself, actually, till the end of his life, kind of with a wink and a nod, wouldn't really be completely honest about his motivations. Um, in my research, the conclusion I came to was Smith, for all of his racism, was actually a supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. And the supporters of the Equal Rights Amendment were mostly upper-class white women who came to him and said, listen, if this passes without protection for sex in it, then white women are going to have fewer rights on the job than black women just by virtue of their race. And of course, Smith didn't think that could stand any more than than those women did. Fascinating. Uh, And so after this bill passed with the sex discrimination provision intact, how did the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the courts approach that ban? How did they deal with sex discrimination? So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, was created by Title VII as the federal body that would be enforcing the law. It didn't have litigation powers until 1972, but in 1964, it still was charged with giving employers guidance about what the law's protections meant. And it was very clear from the outset that the EEOC's leadership really thought this was just as much of a joke as the folks on the floor who had initially heard Smith's uh, amendment be offered. They really considered Title VII to be a race bill first and foremost. And there were some really sexist comments from the initial leadership of the EEOC. The the first executive director of the EEOC was FDR Jr. And when asked by reporters um, about the addition of the amendment, when when they asked him, what about sex? He said, I'm all for it. (laughs) Um, There was another executive director a few years later who said that the sex amendment was a fluke that was conceived out of wedlock. So they definitely were not that receptive. As Gail Collins recounts in her book, When Everything Changed, um, the they the last laugh was uh, with the women because the f- first year that the EEOC was open, a full third of the charges came from women, most of them coming from flight attendants who were challenging all of the various ways in which they were restricted on the job in discriminatory ways, such as uh, not being able to get married, not being able to get pregnant or getting fired as soon as they got pregnant, not being able to gain 10 pounds <laughs> or else they'd be fired. Um, being fired when they got to age 30, all of those various kinds of of barriers that were only placed on female flight attendants and not men. And then um, it went from there. A lot of these LGBTQ cases have drawn on a case called Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins uh, to determine that sex discrimination actually does encompass anti-gay and anti-trans discrimination. Can you talk to us a little bit about what happened in, in Price Waterhouse and why that was such an important ruling? Sure. And just to put this in historic context, uh, Price Waterhouse was decided in 1989 and was making its way through the courts through the 80s. And the court had addressed a variety of different kinds of employer policies that really were premised on stereotypes, things like the idea that height and weight made someone a better prison guard, even if that kept all women virtually out of the job. And then after the case involving the height and weight restriction in Alabama prisons, there also was a case involving women and pension benefits. And the the court had decided that women who were being required by a company to pay more of their weekly wages into the company's pension account based on generalizations about how long women lived and the fact that they'd be on average collecting 
pension benefits for longer than men. The court even struck that down as being an impermissible elevation of group identity over individual identity. So by the time the Supreme Court considered the case of Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins in the late 1980s, there was some basis for them to be considering this issue of generalizations or stereotypes about groups versus individual merit. So the Pricewaterhouse case concerned Ann Hopkins, who in the early 80s was working at the then Big 8 accounting firm Pricewaterhouse, and she was very successful. Um, when she went up for partner, she was the only woman out of 88 contenders, but she had the highest book of business. She had brought in the most clients and the most the most profits for the firm. And so she thought she was a shoe-in. It was the right business decision for the company to make, but she didn't get partner. And when she started talking to partners about who had evaluated her application about why she didn't get partner. She heard nothing about her skills and everything about who she was. She was mm-hmm. called macho. She was called too vulgar, having a vocabulary too vulgar to be a lady partner. She overcompensated for being a woman. Um, she needed a course at charm school. And she did hang in there for another year. I will also say she told me she did buy a pink suit So she really (laughs) did try to heed the advice she'd been given. But surprise, surprise, she, in fact, was not even put forward for partnership the next year. And so she, at that point, had a lawyer and she quit. And her lawyer, Doug Huron, in Washington, D.C., had a brilliant stroke, which was he was aware of social science being used in race discrimination cases, including in Brown versus Board of Education, to help educate judges about how stereotypes infect decision-making, how ideas about how people should act or should not act help determine their decision-making and result in biased decisions. And so he got a, a social scientist at that time at Carnegie Mellon, Susan Fisk, to write an expert report and testify in Ann Hopkins' case about how someone's failure, in, in this case specifically a woman's failure, to conform to stereotypes about what men think a woman, a real woman, should look like, should act like, um, that that was a form of sex discrimination. And um, the Supreme Court agreed with that. Uh, the Supreme Court found that if your only problem with someone in their their performance is that they need a softer shade of lipstick, then maybe it's not so much you know their performance that's the problem and it's their gender. And that was simply revolutionary. The idea that being the wrong kind of woman, denying someone an opportunity because they're the wrong kind of woman is just as much discrimination as saying we're not going to hire women, period. And that really set off a whole new um, era in sex discrimination law. Jillian, how did this principle of sex stereotyping that was really clearly enunciated in Price Waterhouse lead courts to start looking at these cases of anti-gay and anti-trans discrimination and saying, you know what, this is the same thing that's going on here. This is sex stereotyping. And so it's also illegal under Title VII. Right. Well, first of all, we have to give a shout out to the very creative uh, civil rights lawyers around the country who who saw the potential in Price Waterhouse to to use it in this way. But I, the the idea is pretty simple. If if you're saying that um, holding women or men, for that matter, to a particular standard of what um, they're supposed to look like or behave like or act like or dress like. It's really not um, stretching the concept at all to encompass within that 
whom they love, whom they're attracted to, and also getting to the issue of gender identity, how they identify even, whether it's as man, as woman, as non-binary. Those concepts are really implicit within the idea that we're not going to punish people for being the wrong kind of woman or the wrong kind of man. So the idea that women are supposed to only want to have romantic relationships with men and vice versa is one of the most fundamental sex stereotypes. The idea that someone who is assigned the gender of woman at birth must stay in that assignment and live only that one single way is a stereotype. And so it really was through the repeated invocation to courts of explaining how sexual orientation and how gender identity are lived that this body of law began to develop. Okay, so so that's a really clear-cut case, it seems, based on precedent. Uh, but, but what if you're a sort of stickler for text? Is there a textualist case to be made, even if you don't believe in Price Waterhouse, that it's just impossible to discriminate against LGBTQ people without factoring in their sex? I think not. And, and lawyers who have been bringing these cases always argue in the alternative, that you can't disentangle gender identity and sexual orientation from quote unquote sex. If I'm a woman and I have a picture of my male fiance on my desk and all is copacetic and then my office mate is a woman who has a picture of her fiance who is a woman on her desk and she gets fired and I don't, it's because of my office mate's sex that she was let go. Right. Um, and so it, these these concepts can't be disentangled from one another. And I think um, courts have also been starting to understand that that expansive concept of what sex means and what sex discrimination means is really hewing closely to what the text means. Now, sure, you're going to hear the argument, and we all have, this isn't what the Congress was thinking of in 1964. It certainly was not what Howard Smith was thinking of in 1964. And no one is arguing that. But what we are arguing is that what the meaning of sex is, is something that has been a moving target practically from the beginning um, of its enactment. What sex discrimination is conceived of has been a moving target. Pregnancy has been recognized as sex discrimination. Sexual harassment has been understood to be sex discrimination, which for years was uh, not accepted by the courts. It was just considered personal differences or personal friction between someone who wanted to go out with a subordinate and the subordinate who didn't want to go out with the superior. So uh, that concept has been in motion practically since 1964. And and so here, I guess, for me is the million-dollar question. Uh, How do you think the Supreme Court is going to look at this issue? That's one. And two, If the Supreme Court does rule against LGBTQ people here uh, and sort of cuts them out of Title VII, isn't that going to do a lot of damage to the law here in ways that doesn't just affect LGBTQ people, but affects a whole bunch of other people who have enjoyed the more expansive understanding of sex and sex discrimination through the years? Yeah, negative rulings from the court in these cases, and and we're talking about two sexual orientation cases and and a gender identity case, would just be disastrous. I mean, first, as you note, the simple fact that LGBTQ people actually would, would be completely vulnerable to being fired for just who they are is, I think, a concept that would shock most Americans, would be shocked to know that um, people argue today that LGBTQ folks should be able to be fired just for who they are. So 
that would certainly be a, a disastrous consequence just from the standpoint of the lived experience of a huge group of, of folks in our culture. But then also it does offer the opportunity to spur legislation, which the Equality Act has been pending for quite some time. And opponents say, of course, well, you have the Equality Act pending. That must be an admission that current law doesn't cover LGBTQ folks. And the answer to that is no. It's simply to clarify as long as we're going to be having these battles, as long as we're going to be having courts fighting over what the definition of sex discrimination is, then let's make it as clear as possible. And I think that this battle would, would shift to a legislative one if the outcome is, is a negative one. But you're right that a negative ruling on these cases um, also sends a very bad message in terms of setting us back vis-a-vis Pricewaterhouse and all that it's done for people who don't look, act, behave, and so forth the way stereotypes tell them that they're supposed to. The way the court has framed the question in the gender identity case, the Stevens case, is troubling. And Linda Greenhouse wrote a great piece about this this week, that it actually puts Pricewaterhouse in the crosshairs about whether sex stereotyping can be extended to cover gender identity. And there have been some troubling court decisions that have refuse to allow the sex stereotyping model to be extended to sexual orientation where the person claiming the protection of the sex stereotyping model has, quote unquote, appeared straight. So if you have a gay man who's not, quote unquote, effeminate or a lesbian who's not, quote unquote, butch, but appears straight, that the stereotyping model is not going to help that person. Because what we're talking about is not how someone looks or acts when we're talking about sexual orientation. It's who they are. And so constricting Title VII's stereotyping model to being something that's just related to appearance is something that I'm very fearful about, and I think we all need to be fearful about. Uh, Well, that is extremely disturbing, but thank you so much for coming on to talk us through all of this. It's extremely important, and we'll have our answer soon enough. Thanks for having me. Okay, so now let's talk census. Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross wants the 2020 census to ask everybody if they're a United States citizen, a question that hasn't appeared on the 10-year census since 1950. The Census Bureau itself, which Ross oversees, says that a citizenship question will provoke an undercount of Hispanics and immigrants. All available evidence indicates that these groups are less likely to answer a census that includes the citizenship question because they fear the government will use the data to target immigrant communities. And as a result, millions of Hispanics and immigrants won't be counted on the census. And here's why that matters. The Constitution requires the census to count all people and not just citizens. And the federal government uses census data to apportion seats in the House of Representatives and to allocate hundreds of billions of dollars in federal funding for healthcare, education, all the social services you can think of. Each state also uses census data to apportion seats in their own legislature. So here's what happens if there's an undercount of Hispanics and of immigrants. Diverse and immigrant-rich states like, say, California are going to lose seats in the House. They just will. And they'll also lose seats in the Electoral College as well as federal funds that they need to help local communities. A majority of states that are poised to suffer most lean Democratic. 
Some red states like Texas uh, will suffer too, but liberal areas within those states are going to bear the brunt of the burden. That's because cities where lots of Hispanics and immigrants live will be undercounted, and they're going to lose seats in the state legislature. Those seats will shift toward white rural communities, which tend to lean Republican. So Republicans are going to gain more power in state legislatures and those white rural communities that, again, just happen to be quite conservative will get more federal funding than Hispanic and immigrant rich communities, which, again, happen to be more liberal whose populations are undercounted. Joining me today to talk through this puzzle is Christian Farias, an editorial writer for The New York Times who focuses on legal and justice issues. Welcome, Christian. Hey, what's going on? So I want to start with the liberal justices sort of tearing into Solicitor General Noel Francisco as he tries to argue that Secretary Ross had a good reason for adding the citizenship question. Here's Justice Elena Kagan describing Ross's work behind the scenes. That it did really seem like the secretary was shopping for a need. Goes to the Justice Department, Justice Department says we don't need anything, goes to DHS, DHS says they don't need anything, goes back to the Justice Department, makes it clear that he's going to put in a call to the Attorney General. Finally, the Justice Department comes back to him and says, okay, we can give you what you want. So you can't read this record without sensing that this this need is a contrived one. Christian, who do you think is the real audience for this question? Well, the, the real audience for this question is the people who care about process, the people who care about, hey, look, this is how government ought to work. And this is how, you know, we have said many times, uh, administrative law has a certain way of doing things. And of course, that's the conservative justices. And by Elena Kagan pointing out how here you have a government official, a bureaucrat, in other words, kind of trying to grease the wheels of government, it seems like something that the conservative justices should be skeptical of. Or, I mean, isn't a sort of linchpin of the modern conservative judicial philosophy this deep skepticism toward unelected bureaucrats in the executive branch manipulating the law? Like, shouldn't this case really be catnip for justices like Neil Gorsuch and, and Samuel Alito, who under Obama were constantly trying to limit what executive agencies could do? Yeah, precisely. And if anything, uh, this case, uh, to not get too too technical with the audience, deals with the Administrative Procedure Act. And if there's uh, something about that law that has been kind of a a thorn in the side of the Trump administration for the past two years is that they just don't follow the rules. That that law uh, just sets out very specific procedures on how governments should do things, how they should issue rules, how they should implement policies, how they should, you know, issue interim rules, etc. And and the fact that three judges so far have found deficiencies in how the Trump administration went about uh, in, in instituting the citizenship question, uh, it, it's pretty much emblematic of all these other areas where the administration has had problems in, in the same area of the law, whether it's DACA, whether it's environmental rules, whether it's the Affordable Care Act, judge after judge has said, hey, you are not following the rules. This is not how any of this should work. And 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 if the justices don't see that in this case, then we're doomed because really uh, it, it, there's no clearer cut case for APA violations than this one. 
Okay, speaking of doom, Christian, uh, <laughs> Chief Justice John Roberts did not ask a lot of questions during the argument. We talked about that afterwards. Uh, my read on his face is that he seemed a little bit bored, which I thought was a little disturbing. Uh, he's usually more engaged. And, and here's one of the few questions he did ask. The first one that he asked to New York Solicitor General Barbara Underwood. Do you, do you think it wouldn't help voting rights uh, enforcement? The CVAP, uh, citizen uh, uh, voting age population, uh, is the critical element in voting rights uh, uh, enforcement. Um, and this is getting citizen information. So, Christian, what are we to make of John Roberts as a sudden impassioned defender of the Voting Rights Act? Yeah, I don't know if he was playing devil's advocate there or he was really being an impassioned defender of the Voting Rights Act. We all know from from history and from his own opinion in Shelby County Beholder that he has some reservations about how this uh, landmark federal law applies to the states. And here, you know, the, the fact that you have states challenging uh, the government's assertion that the, the Voting Rights Act should be protected. It's an irony of ironies. And also the, the fact that, uh, you know, really, if you look at the record, if you look at how lower court judges have described Secretary Wilbur Ross's decision to shop for this justification, this pretext, uh, as they found, uh, it's, it truly shows you that there really isn't a, a real motive, a real a purpose for, for this thing. And uh, as, as Elena Kagan said le- later also in the argument, uh, there have been many, many associate attorney generals for the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department who have never had a need for, for this citizenship data. So for all of a sudden to Chief Justice Roberts to, to kind of perhaps uh, again, he may be playing devil's advocate to, to suggest that this is necessary. It, it's, it's just deeply ironic. Christian, I can feel your deep and profound desire to believe that the chief justice is not a partisan hack. Uh, and I share that desire. Uh, but I feel like this case is in some ways a kind of make or break test of whether this Supreme Court, or at least the conservative majority, uh, is willing to bend and twist the law uh, to let the Trump administration achieve its aims, uh, even if in any other circumstance or context, that majority would step in and say, no, you absolutely can't do that. So tell me what will happen here, not just to the law, but to, I think, the public sense and the legitimacy of the Supreme Court if we get a five to four ruling uh, upholding the citizenship question. It will be disastrous if that's what happens. I don't. I can't even imagine right now as we speak, I think they're, they're talking about this case in conference and, and they're, I guess, voting on how this case is going to come out. It is my hope for the future of the court's remaining legitimacy and and, and, and its public standing before everyone else that, that they don't fall along the usual partisan lines. As as many have said and, and have observed, this, is, this should be a clear-cut case. Uh, I guess there is a colorable argument that Roberts had to, you know, give it to Trump last year when he voted to uphold the travel ban uh, because it was a national security context. Maybe you can make an argument for that. But here, this is no national security context. This is straight uh, federal governance, how, you know, uh, the Trump administration should do its job under the law, under the regulations, under the APA. 
And and if and if this comes down to just the usual partisan alliances, uh, forget about the legitimacy of the court. This is going to harm the census. This is going to harm the count. And also that's going to, down the line, affect how districts are drawn. It's going to affect funding for many communities. And, and, and most importantly, one thing that has gotten lost in the conversations around this case is that uh, a lot of people are making this case into uh, citizens versus non-citizens, immigrants versus Americans. But this case affects all of us. Uh, there are many of us who are citizens, who have family members who are immigrants, but there are also many of us who maybe live in an uh, you know all-white community or just a community with not many immigrants. Uh, but just the fact that a few of those people in your own community w- will not get counted will affect you, will affect everyone else. And, and a lot of people don't see that. They just tend to think of their own little turf. But it has really broad implications for, for our American political system. So let us hope that they can see the, these greater implications and that they can do the right thing. Right. So, so if there was one justice on Tuesday who really did seem to grasp the urgent implications of this case and seem to see through all of the partisan pretext that the Trump administration has tried to put up here, uh, it was Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She was incredibly active during arguments. Uh, she, she jumped in right at the beginning and she wasn't going to take any garbage from Solicitor General Noel Francisco. Uh, here's one of, I think, the most remarkable exchanges of the morning uh, when Justice Sotomayor interrogated Francisco about this rather strange point he was trying to make about boycotting the census. And under my friends on the other side's position, you are effectively empowering any group in the country to knock off any question on the census if they simply get together and boycott it. Are you suggesting that Hispanics are boycotting the census? Not in they, the... Are you suggesting they don't have whether it's rational or not, that they don't have a legitimate fear. Uh, what do you make of that exchange, Christian? That was near the end of the argument. And it looks like Veronal Francisco was just trying to warn the justices, hey, look, if you do what these respondents or the plaintiffs in this case are telling you to do, then anyone is going to be able to challenge the census. Hey, look, uh, in the history of our nation, we haven't had a challenge like this one. And, and Justice Sotomayor, even though it may not been the issue in the case, she brought to bear what's at stake here. And the truth of the matter is, and what census officials themselves have recognized, is that there are many communities who will just be fearful of responding. The reality on the ground, something that you didn't hear at oral arguments, is that this is a very anti-immigrant administration. This is an administration that is targeting communities, targeting activists, targeting people who are helping immigrants. Uh, and, and, and as a result, there is a legitimate fear among them uh, to respond to something as simple as a census form. Uh, and, uh, and, and the fact that, uh, you know, that they're suggesting or Noel Francisco and the administration are suggesting that uh, people will be violating the law by not responding. It just flies in the face of the reality that uh, that many immigrants are facing. So I'm glad that she brought that up at the end because it's important to also realize that there is a there's a personal dimension to what the administration is doing. Justice Sotomayor, keeping it real as always. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Hey, thank you for inviting me, Mark. I'm now going to turn the microphone over to Dahlia to talk to Richard Rothstein about housing segregation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sometimes it's important to think about how the courts and the law have succeeded, and other times it's useful to think about how they failed. And you're about to hear a conversation that unpacks the history of housing segregation and the systemic and concerted efforts that supported that segregation. This discussion is based on a really powerful and I think impactful book about law and segregation that was written by Richard Rothstein. The book is called The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. It was published in 2017. It has won multiple awards and it knocked my socks off when I read it. It's really and truly transformational in terms of how you come to think about the difference between de facto and de jure segregation and the systems that allow for both. Richard Rothstein is a research associate of the Economic Policy Institute, a fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Richard, welcome to Amicus. Thank you very much. I think I want to start by telling you that, you know, one of the enduring tropes of constitutional thinking that I took away from law school was that Brown versus Board of Education fixes everything in 1954, uh, that as soon as the court formalized, you know, and constitutionalized the idea of school desegregation, de jure race discrimination blows up. And I think in about a million ways, your book shows that housing discrimination was and still is as pernicious as school discrimination. So if what I just said is descriptively correct, Richard, can you talk about how we started fetishizing school desegregation as the corrective here? It wasn't just schools. You know, after Brown versus Board of Education, we tackled segregation and everything from lunch counters to water fountains to buses to interstate transportation. And in all of those cases, we understood that they were unconstitutional because they were required by government policy, by law, by regulation, despite having come to the understanding that racial segregation was not only unconstitutional, it was wrong, it was immoral, it was harmful to both African Americans and to whites. We've left untouched the biggest segregation of all, which is that every metropolitan area in this country is residentially segregated. And every one of them has clearly defined areas, neighborhoods that uh, are white or all white or mostly white, clearly defined areas that are African-American or mostly African-American. It's not that we tried to desegregate neighborhoods and have failed. We've never even tried. We all consider it part of the natural environment. We think it's uh, unfortunate. Nobody thinks it's a good thing. But we think there's nothing we can do about it because we say that unlike the other forms of segregation, what the court calls the jury segregation, 
This one wasn't caused by government. This one wasn't created by law, by policy, by regulation. This one just sort of happened. It happened because, oh, individuals wouldn't sell homes to people of the opposite race or real estate agents or banks, private institutions discriminated. Or maybe people just like to live with each other of the same race. Or maybe it's just an economic thing that African-Americans typically have low incomes and uh, lower incomes than whites and uh, can't afford to live in middle-class white neighborhoods. For all of these reasons, racial segregation in neighborhoods arose, and we tell ourselves that because, unlike the other forms of segregation, uh, this one wasn't created by government, then we don't have a responsibility to do anything about it, and we can't do anything about it. And the Supreme Court has ratified this rationalization. It calls uh, residential segregation de facto for all the reasons I just described. And it's gone so far as to say in the parents involved decision in 2007 that if you have de facto segregation, not only can't you do anything about it, but you're prohibited from doing anything about it uh, on an explicit basis. So this is a rationalization we've developed. It turns out it's has no basis in in factual reality. Uh, Racial segregation in every metropolitan area of this country was designed, enforced, created, perpetuated by explicit, racially explicit government policy at all levels of government that was designed to ensure that African Americans and whites couldn't live with each other, near one another. And if we understood that history and didn't rationalize it away, we would understand that not only can we do something about residential segregation, we're obligated as American citizens to do something to remedy this most serious of civil rights violations, in many ways more serious than any of the others that we dealt with in the uh, mid-20th century. So that's really, I think, the core revelation of the book that, oh, we all like to believe uh, segregation, at least in housing, it was just individual, you know, bad actors, racist private choices. But no, no, this was purposeful, ongoing, decades long government actions taken to keep the races apart. You call the book a forgotten history. And, and, and I have to tell listeners, uh, it's all there. I mean, this is an astonishing trove of, of proof. I don't think it's disputable. Wh- who forgot it and why did we forget this history? I think we've forgotten it because it rationalizes our inability and particularly our lack of desire to do anything about it. And so it's a comfortable story that we've adopted that lets us off the hook from completing the civil rights revolution of the uh, 20th century. And I wonder if that maybe maybe is partly the answer to my question about why we fetishize Brown. That there's something immoral and wrong about letting children go to segregated schools, but we're okay <laughs> with segregated housing. That That doesn't offend us. And so we don't talk about it because, eh, you know, kids, it's different with kids. Is that possible? Well, I think it does offend us. I don't think that most of your listeners think this is okay. They just think it's not something that's our responsibility to correct. And it's not a constitutional issue. It's simply a question of economics and private choices. And we understand we have an imperfect society and uh, not every issue can be resolved. And this is one that we just put in that category because we've adopted a constitutional theory that makes a clear distinction between de jure and de facto segregation. We've placed the, the residential segregation in the metropolitan areas in the de facto column, 
and we move on and ignore it. The reality is that schools today are more segregated than they have been at any time in the past 45 years, and they're segregated because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. And so long as we believe that uh, those neighborhoods were segregated de facto, not only can't we do anything about residential segregation, we can't do anything about the continuing segregation of schools. I want to just be super clear for listeners who are not constitutional scholars. De jure means this happened because some legal apparatus constructed the segregation. De facto means it just happened bad actors, right? That's that's our working definition. Yeah, it's the difference between public action and private action. If it was done by government, if the government violates civil rights by creating segregation, it's de jure. If the government had nothing to do with it or very little to do with it and it was all done by private activity, it's de facto and it's beyond uh, the reach of constitutional remedy. So now I really need you to dive down into the history uh, because this is not recent history. This goes way, way, way back. But but can you give us just some examples of what you found in terms of indisputable government policy that was segregating the races in housing? There were many, many of them, but let me focus on two. One is public housing. Public housing, most people think is for poor people, but in fact, Public housing was created for the first time for civilians during the New Deal by the Roosevelt administration in 1933. And it was not for poor people. It was for working class families who were part of the employed during the Depression. They could afford housing, but there was none available. And the Public Works Administration constructed public housing for working class families. And everywhere it segregated it, creating separate projects for African-Americans and whites, not in the South, in the North, in the East, in the Midwest. And it frequently segregated neighborhoods that had previously been integrated. Many people don't know or remember that in the mid to early 20th century, we had a lot of integration in downtown urban areas, simply because workers all worked in the downtown area. Factories were located there because they had to be near either railroad terminals or deep water ports, and people had to walk to work. They didn't have automobiles. So if you had factories where African-Americans and Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and Jewish immigrants, even rural migrants uh, were working, they all had to live close enough to those downtown areas to walk to work. So these were integrated neighborhoods, broadly integrated neighborhoods. Uh, The great African-American poet and novelist, uh, Langston Hughes, uh, wrote about how he grew up in an integrated Cleveland neighborhood near downtown Cleveland. This is not unusual. He says his best friend in high school was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. Well, the Public Works Administration uh, demolished integrated housing in that neighborhood to create two separate projects, one for African Americans and one for whites, creating a pattern of segregation in Cleveland that previously hadn't existed uh, and might never have developed in the way it did. It built other segregated projects elsewhere in the city. And it did this all over the country. It did this in places that are self-satisfied, consider themselves liberal, uh, like Cambridge, Massachusetts, the area between Harvard and MIT. Uh, The Central Square neighborhood was an integrated neighborhood. It was actually about half white, half black in the 1930s. The Public Works Administration demolished housing in that neighborhood and created two separate projects, one for African-Americans and one for whites. Uh, creating a pattern of segregation in the Boston metropolitan area with that and other segregated public housing projects that otherwise would never have developed in the force that they did. During World War II, uh, hundreds of thousands of workers flocked to centers of defense production to 
uh, take jobs in war industries, uh, jobs that they hadn't been able to access uh, during the Depression. They overwhelmed the communities where they uh, migrated to, and the government had to provide housing if it wanted the ships and the airplanes and the tanks and the jeeps to keep on being produced. And so the government created segregation by building separate projects, separate housing projects for war workers. There can be no dispute that it was the government that created the patterns of segregation because on the West Coast, there had been no substantial African-American populations prior to World War II. It's not like the East and the Midwest. The largest shipbuilding area on the West Coast was a suburb of Berkeley called Richmond. Uh, 100,000 workers came to work there. The government built temporary and shoddy housing for the African-Americans in the industrial area near the shipyards. And it built more permanent housing for the white workers in the residential areas, clearly designated. Uh, the city of Richmond announced that the, the reason that the housing was temporary for the African-Americans was that at the end of World War II, African-Americans who came to the community would have to leave, whereas whites could stay. The other major policy that the government uh, created was a policy of the Federal Housing Administration that was designed to suburbanize the entire white urban population into single-family homes outside uh, urban areas. Levittown, east of New York City, is perhaps the best known. Uh, some of your listeners may remember hearing a song that Pete Seeger used to sing, uh, written by Malvina Reynolds, about little boxes on a hillside oh, yeah. made yeah. of ticky-tacky. <laughs> that was a, um, a giant subdivision, almost as large as Levittown, south of San Francisco. That and many other projects like it were uh, developed by the Federal Housing Administration on a racially explicit basis. Uh, someone like Levitt uh, or the builder of the, the little boxes, uh, Henry Dolger, uh, they could never have assembled the capital to build 15,000, 17,000 homes in one place. No bank would be crazy enough to lend the money to do such a thing. The only way that they could build these projects was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, uh, submitting their plans for the developments, including a commitment never to sell a home to an African-American. Um, the Federal Housing Administration even required these builders like Levitt or like Henry Dolger to put a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale or rental to African-Americans. Once that commitment had been made, uh, the Federal Housing Administration guaranteed their bank loans to build these giant developments. And this went on in every metropolitan area in the country. This was not the actions of rogue bureaucrats. This was uh, written in the Federal Housing Administration's manual. It provided that no uh, loan guarantees could be provided to uh, builders who were going to integrate their developments. It even prohibited loan guarantees to developments that were near where African Americans lived because they ran uh, what the manual said, uh, uh, the risk of infiltration of incompatible racial elements. These two policies, and there were many others, but these two policies were some of the major ones. Public housing, which originally was um, for both whites and blacks, um, soon became primarily for blacks because when blacks were concentrated in urban areas, prohibited from leaving by these federal housing administration policies effectively, and whites were subsidized to leave, it was about the same time that industry left the cities, uh, they no longer needed to be located uh, near deep water ports or near railroad terminals. Highways were being built in the 1950s, and industry could be located uh, in rural areas and suburban areas. Once that happened, even the white projects had to be opened up to African Americans because there were fewer and fewer whites living there as they were subsidized 
to move to single-family homes in the suburbs by the FHA. The projects became all African Americans. The industry left. The people living in those projects were no longer working class because they no longer had good jobs. Government had to subsidize those projects. Once they began subsidizing it, uh, maintenance and operations uh, declined. The projects deteriorated. They became the kind of slums that we associate with public housing. But these two projects, concentrating African Americans in jobless areas, in uh, either public housing or in other rental units in the private market, and subsidizing whites to leave those areas and move into single-family homes in the suburbs uh, were the two main policies that uh, created the patterns of segregation that we know. The subsidy for whites was so great that whites could leave public housing and move into an FHA or VA-financed suburb of single-family homes and pay less in their monthly housing costs than they were paying for rent in public housing. And at the end of that, they own their home. They own their home. Well, that's why this history is uh, so critical to understand. Uh, It determines the uh, construct of urban areas today. The white families who were subsidized to buy those homes by the federal government in the mid-20th century gained over the next couple of generations uh, $200,000, in wealth, in equity. African-Americans who were prohibited by explicit federal policy from participating in that wealth-generating activity continue to rent apartments in in urban areas. Today, African-American incomes are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. But African-American wealth is only 10% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century and that we've never remedied. And it determines so much of the racial inequality that we have today because low-income African Americans are concentrated in, in neighborhoods of severe disadvantage. We have an achievement gap in schools. We can't solve that achievement gap in segregated schools. We have enormous disparities in life expectancy and wealth between whites and African-Americans because African-Americans are living in disadvantaged neighborhoods without amenities and and access to health care and clean air and groceries. We have uh, violence uh, in places like Ferguson and Milwaukee because of the concentration of the most disadvantaged young men in neighborhoods where they have little access to good jobs. We wouldn't have the kind of police confrontations with those men if we weren't concentrating them in single neighborhoods. We'd spend a lot of time thinking about the symptoms, whether it's school reform or public health or monitoring police activity, but ignore the underlying cause, which is an unconstitutional arrangement of housing, uh, segregation in metropolitan areas. Can you really put a the finest point you can on the ways in which this was absolutely intentional. And I, I'm going to ask you the follow-up question, which is why, uh, why the government was working so hard. And it, it's clear from the book, there were people who wanted to push back, uh, who couldn't pierce this policy of segregating the races in housing. This was so explicit uh, that it is quite astounding that we have uh, been able to satisfy our desires by rationalizing it away. Clearly, people who moved into these public housing projects knew that the public housing projects were designated by race. It's not that, 
I mean, take the, the famous uh, project Pruitt-Igo in St. Louis. Uh, Pruitt was for African-Americans. Igo was for whites. It's not that African-Americans like the name Pruitt and whites <laughs> like the name Igo. These were clearly designated. There was a clear government policy. Every family who bought a home in Levittown or in um, Daly City or any of these other suburbs, these were all racially explicit, exclusive projects. Every family knew what their deeds said. In Levittown, for example, it was a matter of some controversy. There was a minority of families in Levittown who formed a committee in the 1950s called the Committee to End Segregation in Levittown. So these were very, very explicit policies. Why were they implemented? As you say, there were some opponents of it, even in the administration. Clearly, the most aggressive opponent of it was the president's own wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. I don't know what his personal feelings were, but um, he never was able to be persuaded that uh, he should do something. His view was that his two important priorities, first was ending the Depression and then winning the war, and he was unwilling to uh, tackle anything that was a all controversial, and certainly racial segregation would have been controversial had there been attempts to undo it. There's another book that you're probably familiar with, written by uh, Ira Katz Nelson, called uh, When Affirmative Action Was White. He shows that uh, the Roosevelt administration excluded African Americans from programs like Social Security and uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act in order to pacify Southern segregationists. But that doesn't fully explain this because Southern Democrats, segregationists, never opposed, for example, integration in northern schools. It was only segregation in southern schools that they wanted to preserve. It was their so-called way of life. There would not have been opposition from Southern Democrats if, for example, the Public Works Administration had built segregated projects in the south but allowed them to be integrated in the north. So this came from far deeper than uh, simply compromise with the Southern Democrats. I can tell you a small story that might give a hint of how this happened. In the early 20th century, we had a racially integrated federal civil service. Uh, African Americans uh, were hired into the federal civil service and the McKinley and the Teddy Roosevelt and the uh, Howard, William Howard Taft administrations. And when uh, Woodrow Wilson was elected president in 1912, uh, he was the first Southerner who uh, was elected to the presidency after the Civil War, even though he had moved to New Jersey just prior to being elected, he embarked upon a program to segregate the previously integrated federal civil service. Curtains were placed in federal um, offices in Washington to separate black from white workers. Black workers in the federal civil service who supervised whites were fired. Bathrooms were constructed in basements for African Americans to use. Previously, there had been no separate washrooms. Well, the... Um, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, who was responsible for implementing this program in the Navy Department, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I'm not suggesting that this is something he would have done voluntarily, but he certainly didn't object to it, and he implemented it willingly. The Roosevelt administration was made up of Northerners as well as Southern Democrats, and the Northerners had an assumption of their own racial superiority that they felt comfortable implementing in public policy. So we think of the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal as being a liberal uh, administration, and it was to the extent that it extended benefits to working-class families that had never received such benefits before. African-Americans flocked to the Democratic Party after the New Deal because they received segregated public housing uh, when previously the government had provided no housing at all to people who needed it. But the assumption of the Roosevelt administration was an elite racially superior assumption 
that infused all of their policies. Okay. You have now persuaded me, and I suspect folks who are listening, that we chose this. <laughs> we really chose this hard, and we wanted this and enforced it. And so then, for instance, in 1973, and you, you, you started with this up top, you know, there's the Supreme Court and Milliken versus Bradley just asserting that whatever was happening in the Detroit school desegregation plans, it this, it was segregated because of something. We don't know what it is, but in no significant measure is it caused by governmental activity. And then as recently as 2007, we have Chief Justice John Roberts writing in the parents case that, you know, we, we don't know. There's no constitutional remedy required because nothing that happens in in school resegregation and nothing that happens in uh, Louisville and in Seattle has anything to do with the government's own actions. So we have hook, line, and sinker embrace the fiction you described initially that we don't know. It just happened. This is just the world. There's no cause. And and what I'm wondering is, is this just, and, and I think you've sort of characterized it as a, a false consciousness that allows us to feel better about ourselves. But why aren't the courts uh, willing to take what you are, again, you are not surfacing anything that is a secret. Why are, are the courts not reckoning seriously with the straight line that you've drawn and that history has drawn between residential segregation policies that are overt and explicit and all the constitutional harms uh, you've delineated in this conversation? Well, as, as uh, you know better than I, uh, the courts don't take initiative in these areas. Uh, they respond to litigation that uh, works its way up to the Supreme Court. Today, uh, nobody would really have standing uh, to initiate litigation uh, that would uh, undo uh, many of these policies. Of course, there are small cases that have been pursued. After public housing became uh, all black or mostly black, the purposeful placement of subsequent public housing projects all in black neighborhoods, there were cases like that in uh, Dallas and in Chicago before that and uh, Baltimore. And in each of those cases, there were settlements uh, or decisions that were issued that gave some low-income families vouchers to move to more high-opportunity communities. In 2015, there was a challenge to the typical placement of developments for low-income families under the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program, their deliberate placement primarily in already segregated neighborhoods. Uh, the court in that case found that such purposeful placement, or even if not purposeful, such disparate placement of uh, low-income housing tax credit programs in already segregated neighborhoods could violate the Fair Housing Act because of its disparate impact. But mostly this can't be solved through, through litigation. The only way it can be solved is if we develop a new civil rights movement, a new consciousness about our obligation uh, not only morally and practically, but constitutionally, to address this issue. We, we would adopt policies. Those policies would certainly be reviewed by the courts. And uh, the courts, if they understood this history and if the history became more widely known and the court was forced to acknowledge it, uh, the courts would have to uphold remedies that were racially explicit to redress this segregation. But until we have a broader political consensus 
uh, the civil rights movement, as I say, around this issue, it's unlikely that the courts will get the kinds of cases to review that could substantially uh, address racial segregation, residential segregation. And, and is it your view, Richard, that the reason uh, the courts, and I don't want to single out John Roberts or, or, or any individual jurist who says, you know, we, we don't have an explanation for why housing uh, was segregated or why schools are therefore segregated. Is it your view that that's, uh, again, I'm asking you these questions that are unfair about why people do what they do, but it's just, is this just so that we get to say the sentence, you know, we're over the race problem in America? Is this, I mean, it's the same rationale that we have in the Voting Rights Act case that we just want to feel that, you know, they're, the, we've solved all this and that's why the courts can so blinker themselves to the reality you've described? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't think we think we solved it. As I say, most people think racial segregation of metropolitan areas and neighborhoods is too bad. We don't think that the problem has been taken care of, but we think there's nothing we can do about it. We've uh, convinced ourselves of this myth that it all happened by accident, and uh, what happened by accident can only be undone by accident. And so it's a rationalization that takes us off the hook from doing something that we otherwise be required to confront. For listeners who are listening and saying, like, oh, dear God, absent a massive civil rights movement uh, to desegregate our, our urban areas, uh, this is hopeless. Do you, do you have a couple of notions about concrete things that could be done? Well, there are many, many remedies. Uh, remedies are easy to think of. The prior condition has to be uh, political will to do it. In the 1940s and 50s, the civil rights victories that we won uh, in the beginning with Brown versus Board of Education, and then in the 1960s, they were also considered completely uh, inconceivable. Uh, so knowing what will be conceivable in the future if we develop a new understanding of the necessity is uh, not so easy to do. But here's an extreme remedy. Levittown, for example, today is about 2% African-American. In 1968, we passed the Fair Housing Act which prohibited future discrimination, ongoing discrimination, uh, uh, on the basis of race and the sale and rental of housing. And as a result, uh, a few middle-class uh, African-Americans have been uh, able to, to buy homes in Levittown. It's about 2% African-American. The area around it uh, perhaps is 15% African-American. If we understood this history, uh, it would be conceivable that the federal government could and could buy up uh, homes in, in Levittown at market rates, $300,000, $500,000, and resell them to qualified African-Americans for $100,000 as a very narrowly targeted remedy for a very specific constitutional violation. Now, that's not realistic. I, I'm not suggesting that that's uh, something that people should start advocating for now, but it it's the kind of thing that could be done as a remedy. Uh, still not realistic today, but more conceivable, is uh, we could abolish uh, exclusionary zoning ordinances. We could understand that zoning ordinances in all white suburbs or predominantly white suburbs are really designed to uh, perpetuate a racially exclusive policy that was created 50 years ago and that therefore those zoning ordinances should be prohibited. And uh, they should permit suburbs, all suburbs should be required to permit the construction of townhouses and uh, single-family homes on small lot sizes, um, even low-rise apartment uh, buildings uh, that would uh, enable 
uh, working-class families, and in particular African-Americans, to move into them. Uh, We now have three federal housing programs still. Biggest by far is a continued subsidy to single-family homeowners, which is completely unjustifiable. We're subsidizing single-family homeowners without similar subsidy for working-class families who rent apartments in urban areas. It's the mortgage interest deduction. That subsidy is uh, indefensible in light of the history that I've described. It should be prohibited, and the funds should be redirected to programs that would help to integrate those communities. We have two federal programs now that subsidize the housing for for low-income families. One, as I mentioned, is the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. That's a subsidy to builders who build uh, low-income housing. Uh, Presently, almost all of those projects are placed in already low-income segregated neighborhoods. The developers would rather do it because uh, land is cheaper there and uh, Uh, They don't have to hold 100 meetings uh, to explain to the community why uh, they're bringing poor black people into their neighborhood. Uh, But we could redesign the low-income housing tax credit program so that it placed a priority on issuing those tax credits to developers who would construct projects in high-opportunity communities. Uh, That can only be done, of course, once we uh, prohibited the exclusionary zoning ordinances in those communities. Uh, The other program we have is the Section 8 voucher program. It's a subsidy to uh, uh, families to be able to rent apartments uh, that they otherwise couldn't afford based on their incomes. Uh, That program also reinforces segregation because uh, people receiving those vouchers use them uh, mostly in already segregated low-income neighborhoods. We could redesign that program so that uh, it could be used more frequently in uh, what I refer to as high-opportunity neighborhoods, neighborhoods where schools or uh, students are high-performing, where uh, African-Americans have uh, the opportunity for better health and for more access to food and more access to jobs, that program could easily be redesigned so that instead of reinforcing segregation, it uh, promoted a, a desegregation. So there are many, many other policies that I, I could describe. Thinking about policies is not difficult. It's developing the understanding of this history and then the political movement to enforce desegregation. That's the big challenge we face today. Richard, can I ask you one parting, somewhat fanciful, counterfactual question just for my own sanity? Sure. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Do you have in your head an imagined world absent all these policies, uh, you know, the FDR and onward policies, do you, do you imagine a world in which we would all be living together in towns in, in, in harmony? Or I guess what I'm asking is, is your sense that, that we would have drifted this way one way or another just because racial animus and anxiety in this country, you know, that you've described in the construction of race uh, that you've cons- described, that, that isn't a north-south thing. It's just the construction of race, uh, that that would have eventually driven us apart. In other words, is there a movie in your head that you would like to share with me about what would have happened but for the policies in housing you've described? I'm not a utopian. I'm not suggesting that uh, we're going to have a perfect world, but we could do a lot better than we're doing now. Uh, 
take Levittown. I used this example before, so I'll use it now. This development of Levittown and the hundreds and hundreds of them like them uh, throughout the country were built primarily for returning war veterans at a time when there was an enormous housing shortage. Uh, no housing had been built during the Depression except for the, the government housing that was designed for working class families, but it was very little relative to the need. During World War II, you couldn't use uh, construction materials for civilian purposes. Uh, it could only be used for war workers, and you had millions of returning war veterans uh, coming back to the country needing housing. So there was this enormous housing shortage. Uh, certainly, whites, many whites, not all whites, but many whites were racially prejudiced. But if the Federal Housing Administration had extended uh, a loan guarantee to Levitt uh, on condition that he sell homes in a non-discriminatory basis, the same way that it would have to do today. Uh, African-Americans could have afforded to move there and would have. There may have been some whites who would have said, I don't want to live in an integrated neighborhood. I'll only move to Levittown if blacks are excluded. But for every white who, who took that position, there were 10 willing to take its place. And so Levittown would have been integrated. The same thing is true of the public housing that I described uh, in the um, mid-20th century, really. Uh, there may have been some whites who would have not wanted to live, move into public housing, even though they had been living in integrated neighborhoods before. Um, but for every white who took that position, there would, be, would have been 10 willing to take its place. We would have developed patterns of integration that were very different from what we had today. You know, there were whites in the South who didn't want to drink from the same water fountains as African-Americans uh, uh, before the 1960s. Uh, they didn't want to ride on the same buses or in the same parts of buses. They didn't want to allow African-Americans into uh, their restaurants. But when the government uh, required that those Jim Crow provisions be abolished, we adjusted. Uh, I don't think there, there's a lot of demand for separate water fountains in the South today. Uh, we still have a lot of um, reaction, but uh, it's not that extreme. So I think we would have made a lot of progress and we could have built on that progress. The other thing that I want to emphasize, though, is that the stereotypes that whites have of blacks, even that African-Americans have of themselves, is based partly on government policy. Certainly, uh, a lot of it is the legacy of slavery. But uh, when, when African-Americans were a, uh, an enslaved people and people developed images of what African-Americans were capable of at that time that's been handed down through the generations. But a lot of the stereotypes that we developed in the 20th century, we meaning whites, developed in the 20th century of African-Americans, were government-created. When we take people and concentrate them in overcrowded neighborhoods uh, without adequate public services, uh, where they have to pay more for housing than whites have to pay for similar housing and therefore have to double up and uh, overcrowd um, uh, their homes, uh, subdivide them, uh, live largely on the streets because their homes are so crowded. Whites looked at those neighborhoods and said, well, African-Americans are slum dwellers. I don't want them in my neighborhood. If the government hadn't created African-American slum conditions as a result of purposeful racial policy, uh, whites might not have developed such strong stereotypes of their superiority to African-Americans. So it's hard to say how far we would have gone if it had not been for these government policies. 
Uh, I'm not suggesting, as I said, that we would have utopia, but we would have gone a lot farther than we have today. Richard Rothstein is with the Economic Policy Institute and the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. The book that we've been discussing is The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. And it it will change, uh, I think it did for me, uh, the way you think about race and segregation and the Constitution in this country. Richard, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you. That's it from me for this week's episode of Amicus. Thank you so much to Slate's Mark Joseph Stern for helming the show this week. And thanks to you, as always, for listening. If you want to get in touch, our email is amicus at slate.com. We love your letters. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham and Danielle Hewitt. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two weeks.